You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and this is my conversation with David Dean, who is a Sunshine Coast-based music industry identity. Let's hear what David has to say. Here we go. David, I want to welcome you to the show. Since 2002, you have been the general manager of Hostile Entertainment, and since 2014, I believe, you have been the executive director of Turn Up Event. But it was well before 2002 that your journey in the music industry actually started. You've been the manager of bands and a booking agent since the mid-90s. Now, correct me if I'm wrong on that. And as a consequence, you are one of Queensland's most respected agents as a result of the tremendous amount of work that you've done with bands in the associated music industry environment. So in your own words, mate, what got you started and how did you get started? Um, Well... It's very kind things you just said about me, and uh, it's, so I started off from a young age, being the youngest uh, in my family, and having older brothers and sisters who are into music and going to gigs and uh, playing guitar and st- piano and stuff. And um, so I was around music from a very young age, and my parents also listened to a lot of music. And about uh, the age of probably like. 10, 11, 12, I was listening to ACDC and Ugly Kid Joe, a few bands, Motley Crue, that sort of stuff, because my brother was into that rock stuff. And um, I've always been a big sports person. I changed um, my genre of music, probably based around the sport I played, which was basketball, which incorporated a lot of hip-hop. And when I was about 12, 13, 14, I got into LA gangster rap stuff. And then another friend of mine uh, put me onto heavy music, and that was started. Gave me four albums that I borrowed, and um, they were Tool, Undertow, um, Sepultura, Roots. Um, I can't remember the other records, but they're the two that I remember majorly. Well, they're a good two. And they're I a good place to start. Guitar, yeah. Yeah, bought a guitar and started playing guitar when I was like fifteen. And, um, yeah, the very first metal CD I bought was Sepultura Roots, which is one of my favourite bands, um, which, you know, it was 20 years, it was the 20-year anniversary of that record this year, and the guys were just out here, Max and Eagle, playing it, which was pretty cool to see. Um, and, yeah, around that sort of uh, 1998, when I was about 15, I got into doing live sound, and doing a little bit of that and learning how to mix a band or set, you know, do all that sort of stuff. And then the following year, I got into radio uh, and started doing a a show on a community radio station on the Sunshine Coast called Noosa Community Radio, playing the metal show, playing lots of records. And through that, I met a lot of people. Uh, and saw there were some really good local bands around the place, but they had nowhere to play. And in about 2001, I started um, putting on a couple of shows. The first show I put on was for my 18th birthday um, with a few underground death metal bands at the Sands Tavern in Maroochydore. And um, I was started writing for Tsunami Music Magazine that year as well. So, yeah, I started doing a bunch of interviews and, and um, you know, playing a lot of music and trying to help promote bands. And I saw there was a bunch of local good bands with nowhere for them to play, so I started putting on shows. 
and um, did a couple of tours. This is all while I'm still at school. And in 2002, I um, started managing a couple of bands and went to TAFE and did a sound production course and then started Hostel Entertainment in June 2002 while I was also studying a music business course. So that's sort of how I started. I think just the love of music and actually jumping the deep end and doing stuff and meeting people. So the inspiration was the love of music and wanting to, say, meet people. But how did you actually go about starting to book bands when you were still at school? Was there somebody that was helping you, for example? Like, was there somebody locally that was already booking bands and needed some help? Or did you just off your own back just go, rightio, there's a venue. And, of course, I know the Sands I eat there often still. are still. I'd actually consider the, the Sands my local watering hole. It's where I frequent most to have a few beers. Um, so it certainly doesn't host bands anymore. But how did you go about hosting the death metal bands at the Sands all those years ago? Um, well, I think through the radio station, through the magazine, the Street Press magazine, I was um, already in contact with various bands and promoters, managers of bands and the actual bands of getting their music and playing it. So I think it was just an evolution of um, that and I went, oh, I can put on these shows, it's not that difficult. Um, all you got to do is promote it. I'm already involved with the magazine and the radio, which is two main ways that you promote things. And this is pre-internet and pre-social media as well. So um, I learned how to promote things by putting flyers and posters out on the street and shops, which is still a very important thing today, even though people don't think it is. Because word of mouth is still the strongest form of building a fan base for a band or a show. Um, yeah, so I just contacted people and put them on put them on the show put them on shows, and I was managing a couple of bands and just sort of kept putting things together, I suppose, and contacting venues. And um, I've never been afraid to ask people questions and how to do stuff or what to do and who to contact or who to book and. I've been very lucky to have some good mentors over my time, which always makes it easy to sometimes get what you want, I suppose, when you've got a, a high-profile name behind you or someone helping you. And, um, the, you know, I've had a lot of help too from my family, from my parents, and that also supported me. At first, when I did my 18th birthday, they went, what the hell are you putting on a show uh, for your birthday? And, like, that's a pretty radical thing to do, but they then, oh, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. So they've always supported me and, like, helped me and, you know, driven me around and all that sort of stuff, which a lot of the times you hear parents go, you know, don't play rock and roll or listen to metal. They didn't like it, but they supported whatever I wanted to do, which is a pretty cool thing to have. Well, you certainly applied yourself, and, and something that you mentioned um, in the answer to the, to the question there, or previous question, I should say, was that you are an alumni of TAFE, and specifically you're an alumni of South Bank Institute of TAFE in, TAFE in Brisbane, which, of course, I attended as well. Tell me about the qualification that you obtained through South Bank Institute, and do you still use it in your day-to-day -day now? Yeah, well, I've studied um, three courses over the years, so... I did a Cert 3 in technical productions, which was, you know, learning the uh, way of, you know, doing live sound and recording. And I actually 
learnt on analog and on two and a half inch tape and cutting all that up and putting it back together and patching things in, which was pretty cool to learn on that um, because now everything's done on the computer and Pro Tools and uh, or whatever com- software program you're going to use where you can cut and paste things you know, with waves on the screen and everything. Um, but yeah, I learnt with that. It taught me a lot of stuff about production, which is very useful when I'm booking or promoting a show and you know I can read production spec sheets of what things are and what people need and require and I can talk to the artist I can talk to the production company or the sound engineer or whatever about about it so yeah it's still useful and then I studied a cert four in music business uh in the same year and I started hostile entertainment before I did that course so Everything I did in that course was really practical, things like business plans and marketing plans and bios and website stuff and all that sort of stuff, which, you know, obviously I've updated a lot of that stuff, but I still use it to date. So that's been really useful. And then I um, studied a diploma in music business in 2006 at the Sunshine Coast or Nambour TAFE. So I think training is very important um, to learn, but you've also got to be out there doing it. There's a lot of people that do those courses and don't actually do any work in the industry sometimes or don't end up using it. But it's been very useful for me. But the other main thing is it's the people that I've met through those courses that um, there's only ever probably two or three people that will pr- you probably continue on working with. But there's a couple of key people out of both courses that I've... Um, um, stayed in touch with and we worked together on projects and grown with each other. Also, the industry people that come in and guest lecture, um, like the people that are pretty high up in the industry and done an awful lot of amazing things that I've, you know, connected with and been mentored by and even done business with and, you know, shows or worked on projects or, or bands with. So that's a pretty cool thing. Um, so yeah, it's definitely good. It's you know, there's it's getting more expensive to to um, study now at TAFE, um, but there is a lot more help around the, these days than what there was probably 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's something it's something I support a lot. I actually give back, and I go into the TAFE and do guest lectures on the Sunshine Coast here for the music students, performance students, and talk about business and you know, what a booking agent is, what a manager is, what's a promoter what's the publicist, you know, what they should charge, their roles, what they do, how you get one, how you present yourself, all those sort of things that are very useful. They are incredibly useful, mate. I think the students that receive, are in the audience to receive some information from you should be very grateful. And, mate, have you had a lot of the students that you've spoken to reach out after the lecture to ask for further advice? Yeah, some do. Some do. It just depends, mate. Sometimes people are scared to ask, you know, because they think you're too busy. But yeah, that's a big I'm always one, isn't happy it? to. Yeah. Um, I'm always happy to talk to people and give some advice and see, um, you know, what's possible or whatever. Because you never know where anyone's ever going to go. So keeping, I'm mindful of the fact that a lot of these people will be rather young, so 17, 18, 19, or thereabouts. So, mate, if you could go back to when you were that age or when you first started in the biz. What advice would you give yourself or specifically what what piece of advice do you think 
if you could only give yourself one piece of advice, what would you what would you say to yourself? Um, that's an interesting question. I would say that you've got to have a go at everything, even if you don't think it's something you're going to do um, in the industry. You need to be very re- uh, well rounded in the, what. Um, you do so if you end up becoming a manager you've got to understand production and journalism or you know publicity media you've got to understand every um, asset of the industry so making yourself aware of all that stuff even if it's not what you think you're going to do or you're good at and um, you never know my one thing I say is you never know where you're going to end up there's I started out working with metal bands and that's all I wanted to do when I was young and now I work with many different genres of music. Um, I'm sure we'll touch on this later on, but I've also got a uh, music conference that I've formed with a few other people um, where I'm putting, you know, pe- well-known people from the industry and on together on panels to speak about different areas of the industry and what they can do. I never would have thought I'd be doing that. So, yeah, you just don't know where the path's going to take you. You don't know what door's going to open. But um, I definitely have a go, and you've got to be very hardworking and humble, and, and um, you know, not not be difficult to work with because it's a very small industry, especially in Queensland, let alone Australia. Everyone knows everyone. Everyone talk. Everyone talks to each other about people. Um, people will ring. People will ring me, or you know, or you ring someone else to ask what this person's like or what they've done, or whether you should work with them. So that's the other thing, you know, people don't think about that sometimes. Your reputation Yeah, your reputation precedes you. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And you want to carry yourself in a manner that... um, You want to carry yourself in a manner where... uh, Look, people always have differences of opinion, there's no doubt about that, but you want to carry yourself in a manner where you're not burning any bridges before you've even crossed them. Yeah. You know? So you must get approaches from a lot of bands that are starting out so people of all ages of course start a band i've just joined a band myself uh, and i'm uh, joining a band at the ripe old age of 30 and i certainly not my first and i don't think it'll be my last but that's what i'm doing right now but anyway what advice would you have for a band who have just got together maybe they've just started rehearsing their first batch of you know half a dozen songs or so and they've got it all ahead of them what would you say to them um practice practice right as much as you can and play any possible gig, venue, house party, party, whatever, just to get your chops up. Um, there's a thing I call gig. There's a thing I call gig fit. It takes a lot of gigs to be ready to, um, you know, go and play a big show in a big venue or um, whatever. You know, you sort of got to get ready. A lot of people think they're ready for stuff, and they go and do it, and they're not. So being as professional as possible, rehearsed as well, having really good songs, and also trying to build a um, a fan base, which is the most important thing these days. Is you know, unfortunately, social media is a big part of what we do now. But you've got to have friends and family that want to start off with that are going to come and see the band play, and then try and build some sort of fan base that. 
um, people will keep coming back to see the shows because if you can't put, if you can't get people in a venue, um, people, you know, other bands don't want to put you on or promoters or bookers or venue people, you know, it's hard to fill, it's hard to get people all the time, but, you know, you've got to keep doing that. And, um, you know, I don't know, writing good songs and keeping people interested, I suppose. But, yeah, that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard thing to do and a lot of bands think they should be on certain things or higher up the food chain than what they are at the time when, when um, yeah, and then what they are actually, so. Yes, that's a big one. I know as a working does musician that, myself. Does that, uh, does that answer your question? It does, yeah, beautifully, mate. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's all about your perspective and your opinion on matters, particularly given your enormous experience in the business. And, you know, the point I was, I was going to make is that, look, I've worked with some bands, some, some I wouldn't say large touring bands, but Australian bands that um, are touring and are fairly well-known overseas and the like, and the guys in those bands have been very hospitable and very easy to work with in terms of, you know, you can put your stuff on and off stage fairly fairly easily. And then I've worked with some bands that are only, I wouldn't even say big locally, but I can assure you, you certainly cop a bit of, um, far more stick from the local bands that you do from the bands that have a bit of a profile. And frankly, I've never understood that. Um, I wouldn't say that it happens all the time. But it happens often enough for me to sort of scratch my head and go, Jesus, we're all down the bottom of the food chain with all due respect. We've all got it all ahead of us and we're all trying to make it. Let's just try to work together. And, you know, if we're, uh, if we're trying to get our we, – we can only get our stuff off stage quick and as quick as we possibly can. You know, we can't move at light speed, so to speak, in order for you to get your gear on. Um, yeah, just some things that I've noticed during, during my own travels. And um, it even happens uh, – I play in cover bands. And I've even noticed that, you know, you get – fairly young venue managers in the bowls clubs and the legs clubs that I tend to play and they can give you a bit of stick and a bit of attitude and I don't know maybe I'm looking uh looking into it too much and and I'm not being oversensitive in terms of I'm not sort of looking into it from the fact that I'm being overly sensitive to the fact that you might get negative feedback or you might have interactions with people that aren't always positive but yeah I've been an account executive at Telstra for a long time and I've just gotten out of that um career to hopefully do something career-like with my uh, pursuit of uh, trying to turn a dollar in the music business. Let's just call it that. And, um, <laughs> you know, I've, I've just always noticed it. Sorry, I'll stay on point. I've always just noticed that with um, the music industry itself, it's a bit of an interesting beast that way. And it, my point there does dovetail into my next question for you. So here we go. Mate, what would you change about the music industry? And I'd ask you to focus on as- aspects of it that you believe could actually be changed. So... For example, it's tempting to want to say to people in the biz to just be mindful and respectful. However, we both know that, well, maybe we both don't know, but we both have seen that sometimes the thieves, scoundrels and liars do prevail, and that's always going to be an element. So if you could focus on making a change that would likely happen, what would it be? Well, I'll go back a couple of steps here talking about money. Um and that's a big thing in the music industry. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and uh, you are listening to Scars and Guitars on 4ZZZ Digital. If you're doing it in one reason just to make money, it's most likely not going to happen and you shouldn't shouldn't be in this industry. Go and get a normal job because you've got to put a lot of love and passion and hard work into it. Um, yes, we all want to earn money, but, you know, there's things I've lost money on, things I've made money on over the years and it's part and parcel of the industry unfortunately. Um and yeah, it's it's you got venues that 
that are wanting there's so many different areas of people that you've got to work together with to make this happen um and i think the big thing is the whole venues and the biggest problem we have in queensland and australia is the rules and regulations around liquor and venues and noise um noise is a really big thing and there's you know people trying to change that um in different areas but um it's such a hard it's such a hard thing so probably that whole if you could have less rules and regulations around venues and live music and and um festivals and the whole no- noise thing that would probably be something pretty major that um I'd like to see. The other thing is uh, people. Oh, how can you? There's you know there's no sort of music union or group. There's the key music, which is the peak body, and there's um, bodies in each state that work together um, to try and build change and lobby government and all that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, it's it's such a hard thing. Like, but venues need to. You know, pay people better sometimes, but it comes down to the musicians. When you got so many people trying to make a living, and people play for hardly any money, and then it, and then you know, people are trying to get decent money, and they don't get the gigs. But there's so many different angles. You've got like the covers gigs and the covers venues you're talking about, and then you've got the touring venues or the original venues and and, and stuff like that. So you've got RSLs and and sporting clubs and bowls clubs competing against. Uh, venues which are just, you know, live, live based. They say like the Soul Bar on the Sunshine Coast. They've got no paper machines or TAB or Kino or anything in there. But the only way they make money is from um, food and, and alcohol sales and, t- and and ticket sales to gigs, um, which is a good thing. We need more venues like that. That's, so Soul Bar do get to. Soul Bar gets some pretty serious acts coming through, though, don't they? So they must at least... I mean, they must be more than break-even, is what I'd say. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, their bar sales and their food is where they make their money. So is it just that... But do, you, do you think that... Just asking for your opinion on this one here. Do you think it's just looked at as an easier earn for the publicans, so say ALH Group, which is, of course, Woolworths, to stock what used to be the music room full of these damn bloody pokers? Because I hate the things. I think they ruin lives. Um, as they're a far more consistent earn than, say, putting on a band every Friday and Saturday night and going to the trouble of having punters coming in and out? Well, they do both. They've got their room with their poker machines in and they've got their public bar um, that you play in as a band, but unfortunately there's the TV screens with the sport on it or the horses up the back going or whatever, you know? So let's um let's talk about one of the venues that both you and I you you were used to book bands there and I certainly frequent it now and I do like the guys over there actually eat there as a, as a family all the time it's our favourite place to go and eat as a family that's the Sands um, they have a function room out the back which I believe is where the bands used to play and of course that was the venue on the Sunshine Coast going back twenty years ago there's no doubt about that I don't think there was any any other venue for a lot of bands to play except for that venue whose name oh, that was the remember. only venue in the two thousands pretty much in. The- in the 90s, there was three major venues on the coast, um, but they all disappeared. There's one out of its head, then, I remember. Yeah, there was the Malula Bar Hotel, which was a big one that a lot of bands played. And then there was a one at Alex Head called uh, Stewart's, and there was also the Surf Air Tavern. 
in the 80s and 90s, lots of major bands played these venues. Um, and then, yeah, they disappeared. I'm not sure for what reasons, because it's before my time. Um, but, yeah, we ended up with just Sam's Tavern, which is a completely different venue now to what it was. Um, the place where you eat and the function room pit next to it was actually the big room where all the bands played. Yeah, And yeah, unfortunately... Okay. Unfortunately, around about 2007 or eight, it stopped due to noise complaints. Um, yeah, from that unit complex on Horton Parade one, there. The big one or one two there. people yeah. across the road, one or two people that complain, and unfortunately, you only need one person to complain, and um, legal licensing can step in and make it very hard for the venue. Um, you know, those guys had to look at soundproofing it properly and it was going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and they decided it was better off not to do anything but to stop the music didn't have to spend all that money they seriously looked at it and wanted to do it but you know when I started uh, I'll focus more on the coast here but when I started in the early 2000s that was the only venue there was no festivals up here Um, there wasn't a great deal of bands now there's uh, probably six or seven festivals happening in this region. There's a few different venues putting on entertainment and bands. Um, it's really flourishing up here. There's a lot of a lot of local bands doing well and travelling across the country and touring and things like that. So it's a great thing to see. Hmm. Okay. Well, um, now you mentioned something earlier that I'd like to talk about. You mentioned social media. How can it be used effectively? Well, that's a hard one. I think everyone's still trying to work out how to use it properly. But there's things like... Well, there's a saying, a, a thousand tree fans can make a, a band's career. If they've, you've got a thousand fans that are on your social media and they love the band so much and they keep buying everything you put out, you can have a successful career off that. Although it's not going to make it, you know, millions of dollars or whatever, but it's going to um, make you comfortable. You've got to really build your social media and you've got to do it properly. There's a lot of people buy buy likes and views and all that sort of stuff and that goes on. But if you can organically build um, your following and you're talking directly to that following um, and they're connecting with you, you're going to move forward and you can see the bands that do that from their interaction and comments and shares and things like that through Facebook. Um, Obviously, Facebook's the main one. I grew up with MySpace. That was the first one. Yeah, likewise. I, Mm. I really liked and I think that was an amazing thing. It just didn't move with the times, unfortunately, and, Facebook overtook and you know we've got all this Instagram and YouTube and um, Twitter and whatever else the other hundred different platforms that every musician has to be on you've got to spend so much time on content now and posting those things and checking all those pages and that um, which takes away from a lot of stuff but it's so important if you don't promote and engage with people you know, you're not you're not going to have anyone showing up to your shows. 
So you well, mentioned, I think yeah, you mentioned in, in context of social media, I can't remember the statement, sorry, I'd have to go back and listen to it, but you started off the sentence with, unfortunately, social media, dot, dot, dot. Now, I hold the same view, to be honest with you. I mean, we've both, we spoke about this earlier when we caught up, okay, and um, we're talking about how we can build a profile on social media, and you just answered it very eloquently there, effectively. But, mate, a lot of people don't like using it. I'm not a fan of it. Um, you know, I've got... As I'm talking to you, I think I've got 85 likes or something like that on my Facebook page. I get far more post engagements than that, of course, but it's turning those likes into real fans. And you mentioned a magic number there, 1,000 genuine true fans. So my question now would be, if you didn't want to build a following through social media, are there any other avenues? Um, well, yeah, it's a hard one. Unfortunately... I don't think there is, but there's things like word of mouth is still the strongest thing. You're never going to beat word of mouth. And how do you get word of mouth? By being the best or good at what you do and people start talking about you. Have you seen that band? Have you, oh, they went and saw this band. They're really awesome. Oh, I've got the new um, album on whatever platform I listen to it on, physical or digitally. I think you can't beat that kind of stuff, you know. People going to work the next day and saying, I went and saw this band, they're awesome. It's how you get the people out to, the, to see the band or how you get them to listen to it is, is I suppose, the hard thing. And there's always going to be some format, like, you know, from vinyl through to cassette, through to CD, through to digital slash streaming, whatever you download, whatever you want to call it, iPads, iPods. It's... How do, you, how do you actually get the thing to people? Music's never going to die, and there's it's probably way too much of it these days because of the internet and accessibility mm. yeah, agreed. to yeah. people finding it. It's just there's an overabundance good, of bands. There's good and bad things about there's, there's good and bad things about that, but yeah, I, I don't think you can um, exclude yourself from social. I have a couple of bands that often go, oh, we want to get rid of all our social media and go underground. And, and I'm like, yeah, that's fantastic to say that, and I totally get why you would, because I'm not the biggest fan of social media, but unfortunately, it's part of our lives now. Um, and if you're doing anything like this, you've got to have the accounts, you've got to spend the time, you've got to have content. Uh, people want to connect with you, so I think it's a very hard thing not to have, you know, email lists and text message um, lists and all that sort of stuff. I think you're important. Um, you mentioned, yeah. Have so, you got any ideas on? Have you got any ideas on how you can not use this stuff and break it, Ben? Well, I do have one, but it's not. A, it's not one that I'm particularly a big fan of, and it's something that, again, you and I spoke about earlier. Now, you mentioned quite rightly that any publicity is good publicity. I mean, I'm not talking about you know heinous acts and the like, people who do criminal acts or what have you. You know that publicity isn't great, but for a band, how do they get themselves into the media? with something that is going to raise their profile. So say a one-off event that is going to raise their profile. So I remember the band Sick Puppies. Do you remember the band Sick Puppies from the early 2000s? I think they're yeah. still going with a vastly different yeah. lineup in the States. Um, but they did some sort of a free hugs campaign. And this, I think, was when YouTube was within its relative infancy. It certainly wasn't back then what it is now. But they ended up getting millions yeah, took of... took off for them. Yeah, exactly. They ended up getting millions of likes because they did this free hugs campaign. Now, I can't remember the details. Somebody listening will probably, you know, get me on social media and say, this is what happened. But anyway, that was an event where 
social media was in its infancy? I think they pretty much went around and took, gave hugs to people and filmed it all and put it up on online pretty much. And, yeah, so that's one and way. Got, yeah, it started going viral pretty much. Okay, that's a good word. So viral. How how could a band perform an activity that would go viral that would therefore raise their profile? Well, I'll go back one step. I think that you asked me what was what can a band do to get noticed or you know whatever it is. Um, you've got to have a point of difference, and you've got to be able to um, use that point of difference to get to the media. For them to want to cover you because you don't if you could be just the same old person that's a million singer songwriter guitarist for an example but if you've got something to your story that's um unique that stands out people will and you're willing to use that people will attract to that so it's probably thinking outside the square um and seeing what's what's different i suppose I know that's probably a pretty open-ended answer, but for an example, there's a band, or an act that I've worked with and helped develop on the Sunshine Coast called Pete Allen. He's a singer-songwriter surfing dude. And he came to me and he'd done all this footage and he had a video clip of him surfing on a guitar, bodyboarding on a guitar and they got all these cool promo pictures and footage that was used in a video clip. And I said, that's your point of difference, like... When, you need to write a press release about that. You need to get out to media and they'll cover it. And he said, oh, I don't think they will. I said, let's just try it. And he got it out to uh, Channel 7. And they did a story on him on, on the local news of him surfing and talking about the guitar and his music. A couple of different magazines picked up on it and GoPro picked up on it because he used GoPro. Um, so it's sort of giving that point of difference. And there's some people that even still caught, you know, um, you know, it's like surf music literally taken to the surf, you know, so that's something different that got notoriety and got some media attention. What's the, uh, is there a fine line between promoting, uh, and, and I'm using this word liberally, by the way, and, and certainly not in reference to what you just mentioned then, but what's the difference between a gimmick and a genuine promotion that's going to lead to a genuine fan base? Um. Well, you've got to wonder how real it is within you. you know, is it something that you're willing to keep going? It's like, do you, do you want to be known as, I don't know, a badass band or negative, and portray that negative vibe? Or do you want to be that happy um, vibe? So you've got to work it out within yourself. What do I want to be? How do I want people um, to portray me in out there because some people say like metal bands can do this whole thing you know Satan you know hate God all that kind of stuff yet they don't really believe that no, that's right spot on but it's a but it's a great um, it's a bit of a smoke screen well it's a marketing tool go. really isn't it it's a, how you it's a marketing tool and yeah. it's a marketing tool and unfortunately people always love things that are um, that are against um not society against you know people so like societal norms yeah they want to go against societal norms they want to be different yeah they want to go against normal so if something's aggressive or it's um offensive 
people would gravitate to it and want to um, want to jump on board, even though it mightn't be the way the actual people think in the background. But it's like, if it's, if that's the angle you want to take and you're happy to run with and you can continue on, that's that that's um, what it is. So I think it's you've got to really know in yourself, and I suppose that's a marketing thing, how you want to portray yourself, what image you want to put out to the general public and, you know, build that with your fan base. And sometimes it's good to know that early on. Sometimes it just happens for people and they run with it and it's what they become known for when they didn't even think they didn't even think about it, you know, so Yeah, the infamous Glenn Benton uh situation where he burnt across Glenn Benton for the listener is the uh front man and bassist and um I don't know how how else you describe him, all round character fronting Deerside. Um Sorry. And he burned, a, <laughs> he burned a cross into his forehead in his early 20s. Early 20s. Now, he hasn't had plastic surgery, so that upside-down cross is still burned into his forehead. And for more reports, yeah. he's a family man, he's got kids, um, and Deicide effectively is his day job. You know, you're more likely to find him mowing the lawn if you visited him outside of business hours, so to speak. So, <laughs> you know, it... But I just, if, you put him on a, if you put him on a stage, he's a very aggressive, you know in-your-face kind of character he like obviously plays that up really 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 well i think he's pretty serious on stage about what he does but you know he hasn't yeah. he's never used face paint like the black metal bands or, or some of the other bands these days or what have you it's really predominantly been about the music for him with overtly satanic lyrical content that's the best way of describing it i think than the, the music that this yeah. side produces and people have gravitated to it and love it you know it's, it's um uh, band that you've interviewed, Cradle of Filth, they had it, uh, a couple of T-shirts back in the day that were really offensive that people wore, and it was called... My name is um, Andrew Mackay-Smith, and you are listening to Scars and Guitars on 4ZZZ oh, Digital. Um, it's okay, I'll just put a disclaimer at the beginning okay, of the discussion. It had Jesus as a ton on, on, the, back, on the back of the T-shirt, and that hmm. got a lot of offence from people. Well, on that point, um, it was only a people, couple of years ago people that bought, I think... But people bought the T-shirt. And and it was only a couple of years ago that I think someone was arrested in New Zealand for wearing it. So it's still yeah. causing trouble. It's still getting people into strife. And look, you could never wear a T-shirt like that in a country like the Philippines or El Salvador. You'd be bloody lynched, I think, if you did that. So, yeah. you know, and, and it's just talking about black metal for a moment, I know we're talking about the image of, of bands and the like, but when black metal started out, those guys in Scandinavia that were influenced by Vathery and Venom, they were deadly serious. And when I, I did a review recently after I had a discussion <laughs> very with... very serious. Well, mate, they were put in jail for church burning, and one bloke even um, killed a, a gay man. It was a hate crime. Um, I don't know why he did it, but yeah, he was... A, that, was the, that was the guy, what's his name, from um, Deception? From, uh, uh, no, the drummer from... He was one of the, the early drummers in Emperor. I can't remember his name now. It's a... It's a oh, Emperor. Okay. It's a Scandinavian name. Um, he's, of course, got a stage name, and I don't want to say the wrong one in case I get someone into trouble. So, anyway, I wrote a, I wrote a review for the Satyricon album, the new one called Deep Calleth Upon Deep for the Metal Obsession publication, and I went deep diving into the history of black metal, and, mate, early on, those guys were... Those guys were insane. It's an amazing thing, that black metal. If people out there are listening and don't know much about it, go and research it. Bands like Mayhem and Burzum hating each other and, you know, Emperor and all those. There's so many of those bands. There's so many of them and they all kind of hated each other even though they played together. Well, I think that's why I admired Satyricon so much because they seem to stay out of all of that bullshit. 
you know, there, there was no incidents among band members, um, very high quality uh, recordings. And, you know, the, the interview that you alluded to that I that took place with Danny Filth or Daniel David, Danny Filth from Cradle of Filth, um, I had to pay respect to him because I think it's between Danny and, and Sata, a.k.a. Sigurd von Graven from Satyricon, that are likely to have had the two the, the most sustained careers in black metal and effectively it's because they've kept out of trouble. Yeah. And their bands yeah, have and kept they've out been of very business like and they thought they've thought about everything from day one probably correctly. Okay. I'm gonna talk about something different now. The people listening will of course not be aware that you are visually impaired, aka blind. And People do make assumptions, and they might make an assumption that it might restrict you somewhat. However, we had a chat last week, and you shared with me that you'd travelled to Sydney via plane unassisted. Now, of course, I've met you, and I can certainly recognise that you live the day-to-day as a bloke who just happens to be blind. And look, we do live in a society where it is commonplace to profile people based on their perceived disadvantage, which has led to something that we know as identity politics. So I'll be direct, mate you do provide inspiration and in that you just keep on trucking and you get on with the business that you are so articulately engaged in. Now, apart from the completely obvious, in what way has your visual impairment shaped your journey in the music industry? Um, that's a good question. Thanks for that. Uh, probably, well, it's high, it heightens my senses. So probably, I suppose, my hearing and intuition of um, hearing a band knowing if they, you know, got the goods or whatever, they're going to go somewhere, um, being, able to, being able to project that, which is a very hard thing to do. Um, everyone's always looking for the next big band. But um, that's probably a, a benefit I've got. And also, uh, because of my sight, I have to retain a lot of knowledge, so I've got a lot of information in my head, Um of what's gone on, what I've been a part of, various people I've worked with, how people connect to each other. Um, but it's not something I try and let get in my way. Uh, I've got the attitude that I'd rather be having fun and doing stuff with bands or music or whatever um, than sitting at home and doing nothing. Um, I'm someone who can't sit around and do nothing. I get bored. Uh, I you know, train in the gym every day and I, I do the whole music thing and booking bands. I've got so many different hats I wear, different acts, different genres, different tours, different stages that the bands are at. Um, so keeping a handle and remembering all that stuff. A lot of my acts can't, you know, just don't know how I even remember half the stuff I do without looking at a computer. Lucky enough, I've had family that have really helped and support me. Um, and technology is a great thing too. But like he alluded to the plane thing, like I just, I jumped on a plane, like people obviously helped me get to where I had to and I, I asked for, I just ask for help when I need to, like people ask me, do you need help? And I go, no, I'll tell you when I need help with something. So I try and be um, as normal as possible. Um, but, you know, music's something, probably without music, I probably wouldn't be alive, to be honest. It's something that's kept me going and I'm very passionate about it as you've, found out from getting to know me and probably even through this interview people can tell that well i think it's um, so yeah that's probably the well i think uh, the that's point probably I the main thing 
it's enormously commendable, mate, that you've just gotten on with the business of getting on with business. And, and you know, people sort of, you know, we, we had a discussion earlier today, and I'll just share this with the listener. You know, we're talking about some of the ills in society. And, you know, in the West, we've really got it all going for us. In Western society, we've really got it all going for us. But there is this tendency to focus on, you know, what we don't have, the lack. And, you know, I do believe in something called the law of attraction. So I, and I'm not you know, shitting on people's negative experience or, or something that might have happened in their life, which has really caused them to do, you know, take a different outlook on life that might not be so positive. But, you know, sometimes you've just got to look at yourself in the mirror, so to speak, and say, I'm just going to go and do this, mate. You know, I'm going to find out what it is that it is my passion. And I'm just going to get moving. And I think you're a very good illustration of that. Yeah, the other thing too is, you know, people like to say no, and obviously someone with disability would understand that. People say, no, you can't do that because of that. And um, if you tell me, no, I'll prove you wrong and, and make sure that I do it. Um, so I think there's that determination to prove people wrong. And I've probably had I've had to overcome more than most people, so I probably am more hardworking and put more in uh, to what I do. But it comes down to the people. Like I'm very much, there's a lot of good people out there and it's finding those right people and people will help you, you know, like all my bands, all the people I've worked with over the years always been very accommodating with my site and, you know, probably blows a lot of them out what I can do, but people are very helpful and want to help me, you know, like I struggle obviously getting around in venues and things like that when it's dark and it's full of people and you add alcohol into the mix of drugs or whatever else there is as well, which is, um, you don't know what people have got in them and it's dark and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, it's pretty full on sometimes. So I've been in some pretty interesting situations over the years. I always like going into a mosh pit, uh, something I don't do a lot of these days, but I've always been a fan of getting as close to the band as possible. And, of course, in some a lot of metal pits and crowds can become pretty wild with crowd surfing and the new stuff to fight dancing and, circle pits and wall of deaths and all that sort of stuff that we've got. Indeed, yeah. Um, But I love it, you know. Okay, so we're going to get to know David in a little bit more detail now. So I have formulated 10 questions for you, mate. So I'd love you to humor me here and play along. Okay, so here's the first of my 10 questions. What's your favorite band? Uh, Geez, that always changes, but... It's probably Sepultura Slayer, Fear Factory. I probably can't give you one. No, that's fine. ACDC. ACDC, yep, yep. That's the icon right there. Pantera. Pantera. Yep, yeah, I agree with all of them. All fantastic artists. And on that note, what's your favourite album? Oh, I literally don't have a favourite album, to be honest. Um, oh, jeez. Or favourite favorite album. No, I- uh, I don't have a favourite album, to be honest. I change from band to band and album to album. What, what is it right uh, now? What's the album that you like listening to right now? Oh, uh, God. I listen to so much music that I can't. I don't actually have a favourite record. There I know that's a cliche. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, well, there's, stuff I, there's stuff I listen to on repeat, but, um, yeah... There's not really anything I can probably put on the, you know, unless I've said my own acts that I work with, which that's a bit 
that's not the right thing to say. <laughs> Mate, you can do... Well, actually, we're go, we've got to get to the point where we do some... Sh- uh, start again. We've got to get to the point where we do some shameless self-promotion, so we'll get to that, so that's okay. But, yeah, I mean, I'll... I'll what I'm going to do this, I'll, I'll co-answer for you, okay? So if I was going to pick my favourite album, it would be divided amongst three. It would be King's X, Dogman, Weezer's Pinkerton, and Faith No More's Angel Dust, because they had such significant impact on me when I was at school and got me started as... Or some, they're the albums that I'd credit as getting me started as a musician back in the day. Yeah, well, I've also got to put Settled Through a Reach in there because that's the first record that I um, got into heavy music. Um, yeah, great album. Probably, uh, I'd probably put um, Fear Factory, Soul of a New Machine in there. Mm. Um, I'd probably put Slayer's Rain and Blood. Oh, yeah, that'd be up there. Um, yeah, I'd probably put Pantera's um, Vulgar Display of Power, which was the first record I got into. Um, yeah, Wicked Album. Yeah, just all the cl- all the classic stuff. But I like, you know, I like a new album that I'm listening to heaps at the moment, which is a cross of metal and hip-hop, is um, uh, Body Count's new record. Yes, That's Excellent. an amazing record. Yep. It mixes so much of metal, hardcore, um, hip-hop, and it's also got a lot of social commentary of what's actually going on in the world in the US right at the moment. Hmm. Um, like, I'm right into a lot of that stuff, like that um, that whole, you know, that's got a meaning behind the music and stuff like that, which a lot of heavy music does. Um, I love, you know, Parkway Drive and their, their record, their very first record that got the massive killing of a smile is a favourite of mine. I uh, um, yeah yeah I'd have to second your your your, uh, your your statement and your point there about Body Count. I'm an old fan of Body Count, and I recently had the great fortune to talk to Ernie C, who's the guitarist in the band, and nicer bloke. Um, I've certainly interviewed a lot of people, but he was a fantastic bloke to talk to. And I mentioned to him um, that he was a significant. I'm a bass player by trade, but I do play guitar as well. And I remember as a young fella in the the boarding school that I went to, sitting in the in the boarding house, my, my study area, and playing along to that body, first Body Count record on guitar. And I mentioned that to him, that he was probably the first inspiration, first insp- guitar inspiration that I had as a musician. He was really taken aback by that. He's really surprised that, that, I'd effect, that he had affected me in that way. But, yeah, Body Count, tremendous band, and I don't think they get nearly enough credit. Um, I think they get enough credit from metal fans and musicians, but I don't think they get enough credit as a band from the broader community for playing the style of heavy metal that they do play. And they do play heavy metal. You're right about the, the uh, you know, some, ur- let's call it urban influences there, contemporary influences and the like. But at the end of the day, they're just a straight up, in my view, heavy metal band and a great one. Well, and then some of the other bands that I grew up on that I loved from an early stage that I still listen to, but not as way as much as I used to, is bands like Cannibal Corpse, Morbid Angel, Suffocation, Great bands, um, awesome. Deicide, uh, Cryptopsy, all those sort of bands I've got to see and met somehow. Cradle of Filth, Dimmin Bulgara, I finally got to see Soundwave in 2011, was it? Or I think it was they played. Yeah, I used to watch um, them. Yeah, they were a big fan of them early on. Yeah. Check them. It was a shame they played during the day and they were wearing their big costumes and uh, wolves costumes and everything they're playing like you know 30 degrees sun heat with no you know lighting which is you know because they're a very theatrical kind of band no lighting and no 
you know, screens or whatever. And they, they would, you could just see they were sweating like hell. I don't know how they didn't overheat and faint. Yeah, you got to play to the conditions someday. You know, every good coach and bloke has ever taken, or girl even that's taken to a sporting pitch, will tell you to play to the conditions. And it don't think that doesn't sound like they did that in Brisbane on that day. That's for sure. Um, uh, yeah, Slipknot's another band I, I like. I've seen Machine Head. A lot of that, I suppose they're classic bands, but um, you know, a lot of them weren't back in the day. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and you are listening to Scars and Guitars on 4ZZZ Z Digital. Welcome back from the break, and thank you so much for listening to those important messages from the station. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and you are listening to Scars and Guitars on 4ZZZ Digital. This is my discussion with David Dean, a Sunshine Coast-based music industry identity. Let's get back to it. Here he is again, Mr. David Dean. Actually, that brings me to my next question, actually. Actually, so hold that thought. What's your favourite live performance or favourite live performances? These days it's very hard to excite me because I've seen so many shows over the years, but um, some of the bands, it's all stuff probably going back, things like when I first I saw Iron Maiden in 2008, that was an amazing show to somewhere back in time to where they played all the classic. Yeah, I was there for um, that. Yeah, at the, um, all the basketball classic. stadium there in Brisbane. Sorry, I can't remember what the um, name of the place is called. Brisbane Entertainment Centre, yeah. Prison Entertainment Center, seeing Black Sabbath in 2013, which I thought I'd never see them. Um, Aussie sung quite well, actually, which is hard to believe, and I saw them last year, I think, on their farewell tour, and um, he didn't sing as well, but, you know, that's Aussie, like, he's the man, like, he's you know, the epitome of rock and roll, how he's still alive is an interesting story, but... Um, Probably the first time I saw ACDC in 2001 on the um, Survivor Lift Tour at Brisbane Entertainment Centre. That was amazing, just not being able to hear for a day or <laughs> so afterwards. Um, I'm very much a rock, I'm a rock and roll person because I've started playing guitar and I still do play guitar. It's not, I'm not amazing at it, but it's something I love guitars and I love um, hearing amazing guitarists play and having an amazing sound so yeah they sort of the older the older bands I suppose are the ones I enjoy but uh, you know there's lots of memorable acts seeing I think seeing a band in a small venue that's completely packed that you can hardly move in um, is always something you never forget I never forget the first time I saw Slipknot at the arena in 2000 it was so packed you couldn't move and it was uh the sweat was hitting the roof and actually raining back down on everyone. That's how hot it was and how many people in there. Yeah, I saw them on that tour so as well. They sort yeah. of, they sort of gigs, and I saw, I've seen a few bands in that venue that are just completely packed it, you know, Machine Head in there, and um, that was going off. And uh, um, Strappy Young Lad on their last tour, they did that you know, on fire, and the place was just going nuts. So I think that's something you can't beat as a grave. A great live show, a venue that's completely packed, and everyone's having so much fun, and 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 the band feeds off the audience, the audience feeds off the band, and working with some of the bigger bands and getting to stand 
side of stage or like right on the stage you get to um to experience that energy which you probably wouldn't get in the crowd obviously yep. not for sure yeah um okay so what's the best festival that you've attended and god you mentioned before there are a lot these days so is there one that stands out um I did enjoy the sound waves because of the bands they had. They always there was always too many people at them. But um, yeah, what's happening? I go to. I've been to the last four Byron Bay Blues festivals in a row, which is I know not very heavy metal, but there's some amazing bands that festival gets, and it's a really cool place. It's chilled out, and you wander around. There's great food, and it's at Easter time too, so. Um, yeah, they got Robert Plant coming next year for that, and like, and I saw Santana. I saw Santana there this year that he went off, and just all the old blues people that I would probably never pay to go and see by themselves. Um, I've seen play there over the last few years. Um, Dave Matthews was really good the first year I was there. He played and he plays for like two hours. Um, and he played two gig, two gigs, and he played completely different songs both sets and play for like two two and a half hours each time so you know that's a great festival um there's the big pineapple music festival on the sunshine coast it's a pretty cool festival it's in its probably sixth year now okay yep yeah have you or got... next year i think it'll be at sixth year. have you had anything to do with that over the years as in booking bands and the like no, not really. I've just sort of um, attended and helped a little bit in the first one. But um, it's just good to be at those things and see what, what goes on, you know. And, you know, hang out with some of the good bands that are there. And there's all different genres of music too, you know. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I'm going to throw two curveballs at you. What's the worst live act you've witnessed that you feel comfortable sharing, at least anyway? And I'll, sh- I'll share mine before you share yours, okay? So way back in 1996, I can't say I was a massive fan, but I decided to go and watch the Smashing Pumpkins, and they were shit. Um, I thought it was a complete waste of money, and it looked like Billy and the Smashing Pumpkins as opposed to a band up on stage. So on that note, what's the worst live act you've witnessed? <laughs> There's actually a band, and I can never remember their name because they were so terrible. Um Oh, they played at the Tivoli, and my friend said, you've got to come and see this band with me. They're one of his favourite bands. And they're a UK band, oh, and they're a really old. They're an old band, and there's a, a statement that was something like a 20... A foot, hearing them's like a 747 taking off. And I seriously tell you, I've never seen... I had earplugs in, and I was standing at the back, and I was my whole body was shaking, and I was still... Uh, my ears were still sore the next day. Uh, it was so loud you couldn't even hear the vocals. Um, I honestly can't remember what they're called. What's another band? I've seen? Um, I'm trying to think. It's a very good question, though. What's one of the worst bands? Because, you know, not every band's always always as good as what you think it's going to be when you go to see them. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen I've seen some bands which I've thought weren't worth the money but the smashing pumpkins con- pumpkins concert in 1996 was the first time in my i was only 18 then but uh it was the first time i'd watched a band and thought my god really what on earth is going on here i, I saw seen... them in 2000 
I saw them in 2008 and it was, yeah, I wouldn't say it was amazing, but it wasn't terrible. Like, it, I don't know if he was, say that he had a different band then, I suppose, and everything. Um, I'm trying to think. There's got to be something that's, um, that sticks out. Um, I always just appreciate, you know, what, what I see. And I think there's some amazing live bands out there. And it's always funny when you see a band and you've heard the record and they're either better live or they're worse live than what they are on the record as well. Um, obviously a lot of heavy bands and rock bands are normally better because that's just, you know, they're seasoned musicians and they're used to playing and they put on a show, you know, but it's probably standard bands that, um, that can be like that. But no, there's a lot, I've seen a lot of great live bands. I, I think live is something that's amazing. You just can't beat, like you can listen to a CD or a DVD or, or, or whatever, but it's not the real thing of being at the gig. And it's always the stories of the going to the gig and how you got there and how you got home and, and, and what funny shit happened to you on the way or, you know, you're running late because of something or, so, I don't know, something funny happens or you end up missing the band that you actually wanted to see because you went to the pub and ran into some old friends you hadn't seen for ages <laughs> down the road. <laughs> yeah, and actually I've got to share my favourite live performance Um People would be surprised, but way back in 2006, I saw the Psychedelic Furs. Now, I'm an old fan of the Psychedelic Furs, you know, the band that sung Ghost in You and Love My Way, Pretty in Pink. I saw them down at yeah. the Coolangatta Hotel with about 30 other people. There was barely anybody in the audience comparative to the, the capacity yeah. of the venue. But my God, they were awesome. Um, it was one of the few bands that when they finished, I genuinely wanted to be... I, I wanted them to play more, and the same thing happened to a band called VHS or Beta, who are now no longer... They're a bit of an indie band with a bit of a disco feel to them, but uh, they played at the zoo um, uh, a few years back, about 10 years ago or so, and they did the same thing. They didn't play for too long, though. That was probably the most disappointing aspect of their set was it was only a little over an hour, but they could have played for another two or three hours, and I would have been uh, I would have been satisfied some with of, that. Some of the best shows I've seen is when you do a small crowd of like 30 or 40 or 50 people, and you know it's a real band when they can put on a, a hell of a performance to that because it's a hard thing for bands. They've only got a small crowd in front of them. It's you know that they, they don't feel right or they don't feel good. And if you can put on that performance, it's a really amazing thing. And so I always say to my bands, there's three people in the venue, three hundred people, three thousand people. You've got to put in on the same performance. You know, you never know who's going to be in that venue that might like the band or know someone that's important or might be able to help out or you know, they might come up and talk to you at the end and get a card or buy a CD or you just, you just never know. And that's the great thing about music, I suppose, and the music industry and performance and all that stuff. I can tell you firsthand playing every weekend in uh, RSL clubs, leagues clubs, you know, various pubs and clubs throughout Queensland that the smaller the audience, the harder the gig for me personally I just yeah. find that you need people to be there for the energy exchange to happen and it inspires you to put in a wonderful performance and that's not to say you put in a poor performance in front of you know a small crowd but you do lose energy very quickly when you're playing in front of and I've even played in front in front of virtually nobody when I was playing uh, in an acoustic myself and a singer I used to play acoustic guitar and a singer would accompany me and we played in front of just bar staff um, 
And that's a bit interesting. It feels more like a rehearsal then, but I would never say it is a rehearsal because, of course, you're getting paid for it. But, yeah, it's always interesting for yeah. bands, and it is a challenge how many people you play in front of because, you, you, uh, you know, you do really want to play in front of as many people as you possibly can. It's a real thrill to be able to do that. Well, I've got a great example. Um, a band that I'm sure we'll talk about later on that I am working with quite closely called Dark Cell just played this big Fear of Fabia event in out of Sydney at Hawkesbury from last Thursday through to last night Halloween and they weren't the main attraction like they're on this stage outdoors and there's all these rides around them or haunted houses and ghost trains you know let's call them rides or attractions and people are lining up for them so there's not really that many people in front of them yet there's people you know listening to them and they still got to put in 100, 110% which is what they did uh, so that's a hard thing when you're not the main attraction as well, which can be a good thing and a bad thing. Mm. Yeah, no, agreed, mate. And um, what's your most disappointing album? So what's an album that you were waiting for and you go, you know, back in the day, remember when they used to, uh, in the local music press, used to be, this album's going to be released on this date, so you could go down to Rocking Horse or Skinny's when that was opened and you could line up outside if there was that kind of a demand for an album, but... You went in and you handed over your hard-earned and you got an album, CD or what have you, put into the player, press play, and went, oh, my God, what the hell is this? Well, mate, I've never done that. I've always listened to the record first before I've bought anything. Well, I've got a cracker that I think um, just about everybody would agree with me on, but you go ahead, mate. <laughs> so sorry, I'm not ha I've always listened to records in shops or put the headphones on and listened to it before I've bought it. I'm not one who likes to buy something that's crap, you know. Well, like many, I purchased Metallica's Centanga almost as soon as it first came out. And I'd even go back as far as saying that I purchased Metallica's Load when it first came out. And the Load thing I could deal with, okay, I understand that they were very close to the mainstream at that point, so they are going to make more palatable music that could be purchased through the Kmarts and the Targets of the world. But when they released Centanga, I didn't know what was going on there. It sounded like avant-garde, um, I don't know, I don't know, I, don't, I still don't know how to describe it. Lars's drums still confuse the hell out of me. The riffs are there, there's definitely riffs in there, and some of them are quite good, but the way they've chosen to record it is just bizarre. So that's the album that I would say is the most disappointing it's album. It's a great record of great songs. On. You're probably not going to like me, but I like that record because of the rawness of it and how um, different it is to anything else they ever did. Um, and they tried, like I've heard interviews, they were apparently on tour with Tool and System of Down and with Sugar on OzFest, and they kept watching all this stuff, and I think it was OzFest or something like that, and they went, oh, let's try and make a record that's really heavy with lots of different time signatures and changes and stuff like that in it, and that's what that record was. But, like, I'm a Metallica fan. I probably wasn't a Metallica fan until quite late in my metal career I always went no they're not heavy enough they're not heavy enough but as I've got older I've um, got into them I've seen them play a few times and they always put on a great show yeah I, I I guess my issue as is a lot of people's issue with Santanga is the sound of the recording so I think to your point the songs were actually there they're certainly songs that had a lot of potential and what's really been interesting is to hear how some individuals and bands and artists and musicians have reinterpreted the music on Santanga 
and they've re-recorded it and put it on, up onto YouTube, but they've recorded it so as though it's quite listenable this time around and, or, you know, the version okay. that they've done. I haven't and heard that. The songs are there. Yeah, they're singing it properly, you know, in terms of they're, they're, they've tuned it up to E-flat instead of the C-sharp that I think it was recorded in. Don't quote me on that, but I know it's a very low tuning that they recorded the songs in. Um, yeah. There's a few decisions that they made that I think if they just changed a few things in there, A, the sound of the album, B, the sound of Lars's drums, and probably allowed Kirk to have a few solos on there, it'd be a vastly different album and far more palatable and probably wouldn't be as um, divisive as what it is. Yeah, you move forward to their second last release, um, Death Nomadic, or Death, is that what it's called? Death Lulu or Death, Lulu or Death or Mag- Mag- Magnetic? Um, yeah, that's it. And it's um, you know, it's quite a good record actually. It's got good production and really good songs on it and stuff like that. It sort of harks back to their old their old style. Well, I think it was but when you can't they were... beat their first. You can't beat their first four four or five records. No, you you, you can't. And that's that's always going to be my view. I think the the albums that uh, they released. Maybe not Kill Em All. I think they were still finding their sound there. But, of course, Dave Mustaine contributed songs on there. And so there's some classic thrash riffs on that album. But the following two were unbeatable. And, and uh, I've described them in, in articles that I've penned for publications as two of the most continuously influential records ever written. So, i.e., of all time, certainly of our time, are Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. I don't think they can be beaten in terms of thrash or heavy metal uh, they'd been in the top five all-time heavy metal albums. I think two albums from the one band. It's an extraordinary feat that Metallica achieved on those two albums. I think. Yeah, and even the next one, um, uh, what is it? Just um, and Justice for All. Justice and Justice for All. So it was coming. Um, that's a great record too. You can't. Sorry, it is. Except you can't hear the bass. And um, I've got a theory yeah. behind yeah. that though. You know, I do have a theory. You know what my theory is behind that? And I've spoken to, I spoke to uh, Tony, the Demolition Man, Dolan from Venom Inc. about it. I think I spoke to him or was it Stuart Answers from Cradle of Filth? And my theory that I shared with either one of the two of them was uh, that I think the band was hurting so badly the loss of Cliff Burton that they couldn't handle having no, the bass yeah. audible on an album, even though Jason, yeah. according to the engineer on the album, put in a cracking performance. Jason Newstead's performance was made mute, which was, which is a, Sad thing for him, it's a shame. because he could always play. I, I really, as a bass player, I admire Jason Newstead. He, he could definitely play. There's no two ways about that. And and some ways, and I don't want to get any hate mail for this. I think he was a more appropriate bass player for Metallica than what Cliff was, because I'm a fingerstyle bass player, and you're very rhythmic when you're a, a fingerstyle bass player. You can do lots. You can be very. I'm going to get this word wrong, but I think it's dexterous. You can move all over the fretboard, and I'm not saying fret fingerstyle. Um, sorry, plectrum style or bass players that use a pick can't do that, but they generally aren't. And uh, Jason worked out how to sit right in the middle of the percussive jam between Jason's rhythm, Jason, James's rhythm guitar and Lars's often erratic drums, meaning Lars is quite often out of time. So Jason sort of figured out how to fit in between that, and he also provided, provided some extraordinary vocals on the live stage as well. It was pity we didn't get to hear him on album. A Metallica album I'm talking about. I know he's done some recording since uh, through the uh, Newstead. He's been in a few different ba- he's been in a few different bands since that as well. Yeah, he's never found a home though. He's a bit of a he's a bit of a um, I'm not going to say lost soul. I definitely don't mean that. But you know he hasn't been able to sit in one place for too long, and maybe that's just what he wants to do. But um, it'd be nice for him. 
I remember when he joined Ozzy's band for a tour, I thought he might actually stay there. Um, and I think Jason would be an extraordinary uh, accompaniment to um, Ozzy. Certainly Ozzy needs a great bass player because Ozzy always had great bass players, especially one of our co-patriots, mate, in Bob Daisley, the bloke from Sydney, um, who wrote all of his albums yeah. and lyrics through the 80s. Yeah. All of his classic material was actually written by Bob. Um, not many people know that or are aware of that that are Aussie and Black Sabbath fans, but that's the case. And you know, I always find that extraordinary that a bloke from Sydney was able to do that, but Bob's a hell of a bass player and a great guy. Um, but anyway, I digress, mate. My uh, next question, um, if you could resurrect a fallen musical icon, who would you pick and why? My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and you are listening to Scars and Guitars on 4ZZZ yep. Digital. Who would you, effectively, who would you bring back from the dead? Uh, fortunately, there's some so great people that have passed away. I'd love to see. Um, I'd, it's not going to happen because Robert Plant can't sing, but I'd love to see Led Zeppelin with John Bonham. Um, yeah, that'd be my obviously pick as well. passed away. That, that, um, Pink Floyd probably is the original lineup because. Said two of their mem- one or two of their members passed away. Sid Barrett's definitely gone, but he he left the he left. Yeah, yeah he he went crazy. I think. Gosh, you know, I don't want to get that wrong, but I think something happened to him in the early seventies. No, that's why I was being very careful what I said. Um, the person who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, who's an amazing musician, uh, I've seen him a couple of times live. Is uh, Lemmy from Motorhead? The legend, um, the icon. Yeah. Yeah. Someone that you could bring back. Um, I'm trying to think. That's that's probably the oh well, Bond Scott obviously for ACDC is probably probably one of the main ones for me. Yeah, that's that's. Yeah, I think the other one that I'd I'd bring back that that I would include up there with you know the great Lemmy, the great Dimebag as well, but as um, Freddie Mercury oh, from Queen. Yeah, Freddie Mercury from Freddie Queen. Mercury. There's so many, isn't there, unfortunately? You know, they're just icons. David Bowie. Uh, God, 2015 and 16 was a heck of a year for artists uh, to depart the mortal coil. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think people like to think about this. These guys are all getting older. They're still alive. And in the, in the 70s and 80s, they pumped a hell of a drug, amount of drugs and alcohol into them. And they're all, you know... You're dead right, mate. And that's what's caused it, I think. happening yet. I don't think they were ever going to lead long lives. You know, a lot of them have led very full lives. And look, I didn't. The David Bowie thing, David Bowie's passing and Lemmy's passing. You know, these things generally don't affect me because you don't know these people. You're fans of their music. But I was genuinely, you know, affected in a small way by the passing of Lemmy and David Bowie in particular because you know I do appreciate their music. You know, whether they were popular or not, I think I would have got into their music. I just I love Lemmy's attitude and I love David Bowie's music. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we just lost a great person in Australia last week. Um, uh, uh, George young, young. Uh, George, George Young, young. Mm. and the Easy Beats and Young and, Han- and uh, Vander Harry Vander, who was that was such a great songwriting partnership for Albert's music, and you know the younger brothers, the young the younger brothers of George, you know Angus and Malcolm, obviously um, from ACDC, but he wrote wrote and produced so many songs uh, for various acts in this country. So he's going to be a great loss to the rock and roll industry in this country, unfortunately. 
Who's the favourite musician or artist that you've met? One that you really, when you met, you went, oh, I really enjoyed that. Um, one of the most interesting ones, or the one that was pretty big for me, was meeting um, Vinnie Paul from Pantera. I uh, worked with him on the Hell Yeah t- uh, first tour they did, uh, or the second one as well, but... Um, the first time I met him, uh, yeah, the, that's probably... I don't normally get very starstruck or anything because I've worked with a lot of people and I just treat people like people. Um, I worked with the Dead Kennedys. That was a pretty cool thing to meet all those guys. Um, Is that obviously, they didn't have Jello. Jello. Yeah. they didn't have Jello Biafra singing for them, but they had another guy. I can't remember his name, but... He looked and sounded and acted just like Jello, and, and you know a lot of people. Were, oh, I'm not going to see him because Jello's not in the band. It was like, well, it's history kind of thing, you know. And to see that, that was something that excited me. I was on a high for a few, couple of days after that show. Um, trying to think who I met, but uh, yeah, no, there's not really anyone. And mate, you know, that I've met that's really amazing or massive that starstruck me or anything like that. Well, the one that the one that I met, uh, and I know I shared this story with you earlier, but I'll share it for the benefit of the listeners. Was uh, about eighteen years ago. I just happened to be in the Roosevelt Hotel in Los Angeles, and I would I bumped into Max Cavalera, and I was a long haired nobody back then. <laughs> you know, I definitely looked the part. I had the metal look down pat, and. He walked past me and I had to say, are you Max Cavalier? He goes, yes, I am. And I said, would you mind waiting here whilst I go and get a pen and paper to get your autograph because I'm a big fan? And he duly waited about five minutes because I had a lot of trouble getting some pen and paper. And my brother, is uh, he's a solicitor and decidedly non-metal these days. Uh, he's a solicitor, but back then he was studying. And um, he definitely looks like a regular member of society, if you know what I mean. I mean he's a card-carrying member of the mainstream of society. And I came back to find Max and my brother talking about skiing or something. Or uh, or Max was they were talking about something completely normal, and I ended up talking to Max for another few minutes. And I was really struck by how cool he was just to give us some time. And I knew that he was there with his family because I could... I, he mentioned that he was there with his family. That's how I knew. And, uh, you know, he took about 10 minutes out of his day to spend some time talking to a fan and somebody who probably didn't even know who he was. That's my brother. So so I was really struck by that. No, I didn't, you're very, that's you're no very lucky on that one because that's someone I've wanted to meet who I've never met and I've actually worked with the band and that is all Soulfly and, and stuff like that over the years. So yeah, you're very lucky there, man. Yeah, he's a great bloke. The other one that I didn't meet but I spoke to over the phone that I was very nervous about talking to before because I was such a big fan of the band is Overkill. So I spoke to Blitz, Bobby Blitz Bailey and um, he was a tremendous bloke. And I actually mentioned to him that, look, I've done a few interviews at this point and this is probably the one that I'm, I was most nervous about because I'd been such a fan. I love that album Horoscope that came out in 1991 and uh, he couldn't have been cooler. He's another good bloke. So, yeah, you know, these, uh, these, these icons of rock and heavy metal, mate, they're all good blokes. The thing is, well, the thing is, this is with any music, um, they're just normal people who have just become somehow known in their field and it's a, their name and their band name is, is a brand and just like anything else and people think that they're a lot bigger than what 
than what they actually are. And if you are lucky to know them, talk to them, meet them, work with them, they're pretty genuine people a lot of them normally. There's always, you know, there's egos involved in this and people can be up themselves, but most of the people are reasonable and genuine and doing it for the right reasons, you know. Hmm. Okay. I've got two more questions to ask before I hand the mic over to you completely to talk about what you're doing at the moment. Mate, what's the strangest yeah. or, what's the strangest or quirkiest moment that you've experienced in the biz? Um, you mean like dealing with certain people in there? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about having a paranormal experience or anything like that, although you can share that if you wish, but have you ever had a moment that's occurred where you think, God, what the hell happened then? Um... I mean that in a positive sense so. as well, you know. Like, not yeah, I know. Sense, yeah. I know. I don't hear that. But there's so much stuff; it sort of all becomes a blur. So, oh, like, I've done so much stuff, worked with so many different bands, and that that it's. I don't think there's ever been any weird moments. Uh, no, it's. I think it's just everyone doing what they do and doing it for the right, you know, hoping to do it. But no, I haven't really come across any weird or super weird situations. Um, I suppose it's just dealing with public and, you know, making sure everyone's safe at, at shows or, you know, the bigger the venue, the bigger the show, the bigger the band, the more people you got to make sure they're right. And I suppose it's just dealing, coming across interesting situations with dealing like venue owners or, managers or security or, or police or things like that over the years, I suppose, would be what it is. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, uh, I'll just share one quickly that I experienced. It's not even that... It's just a quirky experience, really, and a bit of a thrill as well. I remember playing in a covers band in uh, Irish Murphys in the city opposite the Treasury Casino, and we're rocking out, we're doing our thing, and I look out in the crowd and right up front dancing with his girlfriend or someone who I assume was his girlfriend was uh, Andrew Stockdale from Wolfmother dancing to our music. So, you know, that was uh, that was a pretty interesting experience. And um, and another one was when uh, playing at the what, what is now called The Elephant, it used to be called The Elephant Wheelbarrow, playing in front of um, Dave McCormick from the band Custard. That was a bit of a thrill as well. Oh, yeah. Quite a Custard fan back in the day. So, yeah, you see little, you know, little things like that happen that go, wow, okay, it's usually the opposite way around, but here they are watching me. And I know it's just circumstance that has led them there. They're not there specifically to watch me, but still, they're in the audience. So it's a nice experience. They're out, they're out to have fun, mate. But it's like that at festivals, you can have people backstage that are important or out of some well known band. They're not even playing, they're just there to hang out and watch or. Or they might jump up on stage. Um, so, yeah, you never know who you're going to meet where, mate. Okay, final question before I hand the mic over to you to talk about what's happening in the world of David Dean. Who's your favourite musician or artist that you've met? Who have you really enjoyed spending time with and, and getting to know? Now, you might have already mentioned it through your answer to some previous questions, so I think who, I know who it might be, but who is it? Um people that I like spending time uh probably the band that I like I've spent a lot of time with over the years backstage and that is um the guys from a, a little band out of Byron Bay called Parkway Drive just a um, little band. really nice guys <laughs> yeah really nice guys um very humble um I've had some great conversations with them over the years and seen them grow 
Um, probably multiple bands. Uh, it's a band called Cog that have been out of the picture for quite a long time in Australia, but they're coming back, writing new music and playing some shows. I've uh, done a lot with them and spent a lot of time backstage talking to them all. And the drummer Lucius is a incredible person who, um, you know, is a great person to talk to about life and, you know, what's going on and everything like that. Um, there's a lot of acts. I normally try and leave people to themselves. Um, but some of the acts I've worked with multiple times, obviously you get to know well. Um, you know, uh, this band in Australia, British India, they're really nice guys. and I've spent a bit of time with them and done quite a few shows with them over the years. Um, yeah, it's, I like to try and speak to everyone if possible, but I also like to give them their space and room because what people don't realise is when you're dealing with acts and that and they're backstage, they're going through their routine to get ready to go on. Um, and so sometimes it's best to sort of talk to them but leave them alone to do what they got to do because they've got to get in the zone to be able to walk out there and give a great performance. Often afterwards is the best time. Um, you know, I've definitely witnessed and been a part of some uh, good party after parties, after gigs and bands have played in dressing rooms or backstage or whatever it is. Um, where you get to, you know, witness what's going on, which is pretty cool. So, yeah, I, have I answered that for you? Yeah, mate. Yeah, yeah. Any answers, right? Yeah, it's just, just you know, whatever whatever experience you've had that you feel like sharing with the listeners, really. Yeah, there's, there's just so many. It's sort of hard to pick. It's the ones that I've probably done the most with, like, with over the years. But, um, yeah, I always try and speak to everyone if I possibly can and, you know, at least know that you've done the show and you normally get thanked and, you know, get some stuff signed or whatever. Get a bit of memorabilia is always good to have, a poster or a CD signed or something. Um, and I've done a lot of the older bands too, so bands like Black Sorrows and Mentors Anything and um, Radiators and Russell Morris and it's always good to catch up with those guys. Uh, Rose Taddee was an interesting one when I did them. They were good guys to, to speak to. Old Angry is a interesting character and they put on a great a great show. I'm not sure if they're still playing or not. Well, I did the Guns N' Roses show, um, but I watched it That's right. at NZ Stadium, yeah. That's right, I forgot about that. But I don't think they've played for quite a while before that. No, I think you're right. I didn't off doing their own things and then. Yeah, there's a lot a lot going on for Angry, I think. I think he was one of or he should have been one of the prime candidates to replace Bon. Oh not Bon. Brian, sorry, in A C D C when they were looking for a replacement. I think he would have nailed that. But um, look, I, I understand why, why Angus had to go with a, a known name internationally, and I know that 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 uh, Angry is certainly known internationally, but he probably, of course, doesn't have the profile that Axel enjoys. So I can empathise with that that decision there. But uh, yeah, no, Rose Tattoo, great band, and they put in a heck of a heck of a performance supporting Guns N' Roses. I might add. Yeah, well, I saw Guns N' Roses, but I missed the support because I was running late getting to the venue. All right, mate. Um, I'll hand the mic over to you. What do we need to know? What is the the audience or listeners? What should they know about what's happening in your world and the bands that you're supporting? 
um, well, you should jump on to Hostile Entertainment and see some of the shows, either my website, which is uh, hostileentertainment.com, um, or the Facebook page, which is where I post all the stuff with different shows and bands that I've got going on. Um, I've got a few different hats I wear, obviously, with different bands, and they're all at different stages, but um, there's also a compilation that I've put together that I do every year of different local bands that I'm working with that you can stream off uh, the Hostile Entertainment website. And if you go to the first page you go to is built for punters and fans will go to shows and for um, giveaways and all that sort of stuff. But if you click on the industry uh, thing in the menu bar, it'll take you to my industry website, which has got all the acts I book and, and um, work with. It's also got a list of all my past clients with different bands and there's some reasonable names in there. Um, I kind of forget them all, that they're all on the website. There's a lot of them. Um, and it's got testimonials and all that sort of stuff on there. So, yeah, just busy with that. The main band that I'm working with at the moment is a, um industrial rock uh, heavy band called Dark Cell. Um, really interesting band, by the band. Way. Yeah, great band. Really interesting band, interesting guys, very hardworking. All the things I've been speaking about, they do. Um, they paint themselves up like Kiss. They've actually been tagged as a modern-day Kiss. Um, they put one hell of a show on when they play. And, um, yeah, they're, they're building that real niche following that, that um, people keep coming back all the time and keep coming to shows and and um, buying their merch. They just um, did a tour with Motion and White, big band from America that, they're kind of becoming reasonable friends with. Um, in September, that was really good for them. They played to all licensed all ages shows, so played to a lot of underage kids that had never heard of them or seen them before. And they just did the Fear of Phobia uh, event, which is um, was a big horror shock thing with rides and people dressed up and haunted houses and all sorts of crazy stuff. It was pretty cool. I actually went down to it. Um, last weekend for the Friday and Saturday night, hung out and had a good time. And then, yeah, they just um, announced some other shows in December they're doing, which is um, they're doing their own shows called Psycho Circus, which is their own event slash festival that they've uh, put together with myself. There's nine bands on each show with, like, they're going to have, like, circus-themed stuff in the venues and, performers and other stuff as well, just, just not the bands. So there's a Sydney show, Sydney event on the 2nd of December at Full Face Stag, which is a venue in Sydney that a lot of metal bands play at, or a lot of heavier bands play at. And they're also doing Brightside in Brisbane and Fortitude Valley on the 9th of December. And then they're also playing a standard show at the Cambridge Hotel in Newcastle on the way down to Sydney and flying to Melbourne on the 16th of December to play a um, show at Club Bang. So they've all round out their year and they've been going into writing and recording next year. I'm just planning the next year out for them and trying to get stuff happening, get them back overseas. They went to America in 2015 and 
did 22 shows in 26 days across 14 states. Um, so yeah, we need, I want to try and get them back over to America. It's just the costing costs a lot to do that because they've got fans that want to go back there. Um, so it's growing that band and using all my knowledge, contacts, info with all that stuff. Then I've got a few other acts that I look after that are not heavy. I've got an act called Dooley. That's an indie pop um, chick that does really well with a band that uh, plays around. She's only 18. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and you are listening to Scars and Guitars on 4ZZZ Digital. There's a surf rock band called Buck Dean and the Greenlits that are from the Sunshine Coast. Great Really good guys that are... It's an interesting name. They're doing well for themselves. They've played a bunch of festivals here and got a few releases, and you know they're still on that, you know, climbing up the lip, 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 ladder and sort of touring around a bit. There's a couple of root facts that I've um, helped develop. They sort of do a lot of their own stuff, but I still give a little bit of advice and still help occasionally with a couple of gigs. Um, one guy called Chris Fluskis, who's become a band called the Chris Fluskis Trio, and I think he's just called it now. It's just the Flusco trio or something but um it's kind of like he uses didgeridoo and and um everything like that so it's that real earth rock indie uh uh i suppose you call it hippie sort of music um the rootsy music which is very popular on the sunshine coast there's another act pete allen um collective who is he's very sort of surf rock uh stuff which is pretty cool um, who else is there? I'm trying to think off the top of my head now. There's a few bands. Uh, there's another band, Lymph- Lymphid Symphony, that are, are just an old-school four-piece rock uh, band that are recording a record and playing some shows and trying to get out and about. Um, so, yeah, that's, there's a few other acts. I'm just trying to think. No, there's a band called Holistic or a metal band that you should really check out if you like your heavy music. Um, very straight up um, fresh metal slash modern metal sort of crossed together, I suppose. Uh, Not to regret, who are a punk band from the Sunshine Coast. Um, so yeah, it's quite a few acts. They're all on my website. So it's sort of helping bits and pieces. And there's always other acts that I'm, you know, looking at, talking to, helping, putting on some shows. I've got. Uh, an event coming out called Rock and Roots on Saturday the 2nd of December at the Calandra RSL Function Room, which is a venue that I uh, do a bunch of bookings at on the Sunshine Coast. I've got 10 bands on there, um, all local bands from the Sunshine Coast with Barefoot Headlining. It's a six-piece reggae band that's doing really well. Um, And then the Radiators, old-school band on the 9th of December there at the Calandra RSL function room once again so yeah at the moment i'm just trying to look forward to next year plan out stuff i've also got a conference that i started in 2014 which he talked about at the very start called turn up the turn up sunshine coast music industry conference um it's we just had that event about two weeks ago um at the lynn lane theater in nambour which i have like three showcase acts, uh, launch, a keynote, and then I had two different panels, 
with four or five people on each panel talking about different things and a couple of um, smaller keynotes in conversations. So this year it's very lucky to have a guy most people would have probably heard of. Glenn Wheatley did the keynote. He's managed John Farnham. Mm-hmm. Very good um, name in the Australian he's managed, he's managed Little River Band and Delta Goodrum and he played in the Masters Apprentices. He was and he owns radio stations and he's been involved in all sorts of things. He did a really good keynote. And then I had a guy that uh, would be very interesting for you to get on an interview called Ted Gardner, who now lives in Melbourne, uh, originally from Sydney, but uh, worked with men at work and ended up in America. And the list of bands he's worked with is incredibly managed tool, Queens of the Stone Age, James Addiction, um, Brian Jones Town Massacre that he still manages now. They're a very underground cult band, plus a heap of other bands and uh, him and him and the singer from James Addiction plus two other people started the Liza Palooza Festival in America that was the first touring um, alternative touring festival that you know everyone played on from Rage Against the Machine to Metallica to Ice Cube to the list is is, is amazing. Um, Big Day Out actually modelled their festival in Australia here off uh, that they went and hung out and watched it and came back here and intermended it. So yeah, he's, he was pretty cool to have and we had... um. Bill Horitz from the Woodford Folk Festival. That's a big festival that's um, not far from the Sunshine Coast. It gets about 120,000, 130,000 people to over a six-day period. So he was talking. He's a very um, intelligent person, has a lot to um, say about the industry and festivals and, and how to grow them, um, which is good. So, yeah, start working on that for next year and sort of re, re um shaping a little bit, changing it a bit and doing a few events leading up to it um, called an evening with some, with some of the people that we want to get back to talk that have got more stories to tell. So, yeah, that's probably most of the things roughly off the top of my head. Is I'm sure you've got some questions for me about some of the bands. Oh, look, I think it's a very comprehensive really summary. spoken about. Yeah, I think it's a very comprehensive summary that you've offered about what you do. Um, you know, and the band that I'm probably most interested in, um, given that I have a focus on, well, I just call it heavy metal, but you know what I mean, anything underneath a broader banner of rock, hard rock or heavy metal, but as Dark Cell, I really like what the guys are doing. I think they've paid a lot of attention, and I know we don't like talking about this in, in a direct manner, but their image, you know, you mentioned that they're the modern-day Kiss or, or they've been referred to that. I think that's excellent. I think they're very, you know, it's... Um, you know, we, we've both spoken to or had some interactions with Dave Shivari from Il Nino and um, Terry Universal, and Terry Universal have a very identifiable image, as do Dark Cell. Um, you know, it's really important that a band is able to separate themselves and give themselves a point of difference, and you did talk about that earlier in our discussion. I think Dark Cell have put in a lot of effort. I'm a particularly big fan of the fact that they're local lads and they've been able to do it, and sometimes I think that there's this this idea that you've got to leave... Queensland, and you've got to go down to Sydney and Melbourne to make it, but the guys are doing it all from here. Yeah, well, they tour down to Sydney and Melbourne and stuff like that, but you know, as I always, I've had people over the years tell me I should move to Sydney or Melbourne, and I go, nah, it's not necessary. If you need to go, you're better off to be beer in your area where you're from, and if you have to, you can jump on a plane and go to Sydney or Melbourne for meetings or whatever you've got to do, like, they can get jump in a van and drive to Sydney and, and play a gig or play a couple of gigs on the weekend and come back and go back to work, you know. 
Yeah, agreed. I, I don't think there's any, any reason to have to move down there given the advent of the internet and the way that it's so prevalent in our, in our lives these days. Um, and mate, catching a plane down to Sydney or Melbourne is really just like getting on a bus, really, isn't it? I mean, it's, we've got a local airport here, a bloody good one here on the Sunshine Coast, as is our uh, colleagues and compatriots do in Bundy, right the way through to, you know, obviously Brisbane's got a, a magnificent airport and so does the Gold Coast, so there's not really any reason to have to move down there. And I know that... Um, completely different genre and i haven't haven't interviewed them but i actually want to interview them but the uh the two main people that are in the electro outfit confidence man um i'd love to understand why they had to move down to melbourne from brisbane because they're originally from our our neck of the woods okay you know so yeah some people choose some people choose to do it like and and think it's going to be beneficial for them like i've seen people move and then it doesn't work out like they think they you just got to try these things, I suppose. So like, you know, there is a Melbourne is a pretty cool place to live and play if you're a musician because it's so cultural. But so I can definitely see why people do it. Um, but like, I wouldn't do it, and I don't think most bands need to do it. But some people choose to, and it's a completely different life for them, and they love it and have fun and 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 embrace it. So it's. You know, you can't say don't do it because unless you try that stuff, it mightn't be for you or it might be for you. Who knows, man? Yeah, agreed. Agreed, mate. Yeah, I think it's just horses for courses, really. It's whatever people are trying to achieve and the method and means of however they're trying to achieve it. So there's no right or wrong way to do this. It's just what works and what doesn't work, really. And sometimes you've got to try things. You've really got to try things in order to know that they're not, not for you. You know what I mean? So uh, I do like that. Like moving country. Well, look, I, I remember it's I was like in it. moving countries and people moving moving to London or LA or whatever to try and do or New York to do what they're trying to. Well, I, I as a very young working musician, uh, I mentioned Bob Daisley earlier on, so I'm going to give him props again here. But he's a very kind. I, I like him. You know, he's just one of those guys. And I reached out to him for bass lessons back in the day. Now he said he was too busy to do bass lessons, but what he said he would do was something. He didn't call it this, but effectively it was mentorship. So he used to call me from time to time, just ask me what I was doing, you know, how was I trying to become, you know, my, I wouldn't call it session musician, but I basically offered my services for hire, you know, for anybody, but I was doing it for free. I just said, look, if you need a bass player, I'm trying to build a reputation, I'll do it. And I got a little bit of work and he asked me how I was getting the work and he was, um, gave me some good feedback about all of that. But the key piece of feedback that he gave to me was, this was in 2002 or 2003, around the time that the Rugby World Cup was on that Australia hosted back then, um, and he yeah. said to me, if you really want to make it, you've really got to move to either um, London or L.A. or New York. He said one of the two American cities. I think it might have been L.A. And, uh, you know, and he did it. He's a walking, talking example. He did it many decades prior. But he did it, you know, and I think that was really good advice. But I didn't have the um, the wherewithal, if you like, to uproot myself and, and move across the sea to do that at that time. But I think he gave me good advice at that time because of what I was, which is I wanted to be a career bass player. Um my early aspirations were, uh, if you, to give you an example, my early aspirations were to become Johnny Farnham's bass player. I just wanted to become a working musician. Now the irony is, I have become a, since a since become a working musician. But how I've done that is by playing covers music. At the time, I didn't even understand that that was a career option. But the advice Bob gave to me, given the way I wanted to pursue music, was correct. Which was to, you know, if you want to stay as a bass player or or a bass player, come guitarist and you really want to make that happen, then your best opportunity is to move overseas and do that. But um, when I was in the Philippines recently, because my wife's half Filipino, so all of her, a majority of her family is still over there, um, 
lot of Americans over there, and I was talking to uh, one of the Americans at, at a pool that I was uh, spending some recreational time with my kids at, and um, he said, oh, yeah, I know what you're doing, and you really do need to move to L.A. So there's a second person that said that to me about something that I'm doing in the music industry or associated with the music industry. So they are far brighter lights, but I do think if you want to get started, you've got to do it in your local area, specifically to the point that you just raised earlier. Yeah, there's a lot of bands too that want to go to America or Europe and a lot of people, I always see the same thing. What's, what have you done in your own country? You know, what's your story? How many records you sold? How many people can you pull to a gig? Um, you know, and then you've got to pay, what a lot of people don't understand is overseas, you've got to pay to play in Europe or America. A lot of the tours you've got to pay to actually, you've got to pay to get yourself there and travel and everything and it get your own accommodation and then pay they call it a buy on where you buy onto the actual tour you might have to pay five or ten grand just to get on the actual tour and then you know it's up to you to get there and, and try and make try and build fans and sell merchandise or cds or whatever so there's just so many bands trying to do it that that people can ask for that you know hmm. Agreed, mate. Mate, I might wrap things up. I've kept you for almost two hours, if you can believe it. These uh, conversations do tend to go on for about this time, but you've been an extraordinary interview subject. You've given us a, a, a wonderful insight into what you do. You've shared a lot of opinions, which I really do want to thank you for, for doing that. Um, and I really hope that the listeners on 4ZZZ and indeed through the podcast can get a lot of rich information from this discussion here. And anybody that's... St- and, and the key point there, and I want to give the detail on my point there, is that anybody that's looking to start out in the industry, just have a listen to some of the advice that, that you've given. And anybody who wants to refine their focus a little bit more, because you are doing it. You know, you are a local promoter and you've had a long and fruitful association in the industry. And I meant what I said earlier, you are one of the more prominent uh, promoters here in Queensland. And, you know, the work that you're doing with Dark Seal is extraordinary. And I really hope for both yourself and Dark Seal, mate, that they go on to magnificent things. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I'm sure there'll be more to me. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and that was my conversation with Sunshine Coast-based music industry identity, David Dean. Thank you so much for listening.